Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. Here at The Art of Charm, we may not have all the answers, but we certainly have some of the questions. And today on Fan Mail Friday, those questions come from you. And then we'll do our best to get you answers, advice, and good old-fashioned discussion, and tough love, and maybe even, yeah, maybe just good advice, hopefully, most of the time. Happy New Year to everyone, by the way. Jason, to you as well. To you too, sir. It's been an interesting set of holidays for me just lots going on on my end and a lot of exciting stuff for 2018 I, it's so funny every year i look at how far the show has come and i can't i can't remember what i was doing i was looking at some older episodes i was doing something in some app and it had ordered the episodes from oldest to newest and it had cut off the feed somewhere around 400 and i remember looking at those and going oh i remember doing that one oh that one wasn't so good oh this one i didn't love as much oh this one's in- interesting and i re-listened to one and i was like what what am i doing what are we doing in this episode this is so <laughs> mucky and muddy and what am i trying to say here this is not up to our current standard of work and i just realized man this is not that long ago that was that was like 400 was a long time ago and yet we had been doing the show for a long time at that point too and yeah. uh, it, it's just funny to see how far things have come. And also, it's fun to see how those of you who've been listening for a really long time, how forgiving you all were about just <laughs> no doubt a lot of what happened on the show back then, too. And I'm sure I'll think the same thing about these current episodes. Like, listen to me ramble in the beginning of this one about how bad my work product was three years ago. That's such bad form. How unprofessional. Well, if in two more years you go back and look at it and go, man, I was much better back then, then we've got a problem. Yeah, it's time to retire at that point. But it's funny because I remember around episode 250, which is Robert Greene, he had said this is a really, he said said some nice stuff. And I was like, wow, I'm starting to get the hang of this. And I went to Guitar Center and I got all new equipment and I upgraded everything and it sounded, started sounding really good. And I started spending days and days and days over weekends just screwing around with audio equipment and going to Guitar Center like 10 times a day to switch stuff out. I remember. Yeah. I remember. And it was it was interesting. And, and that was when I said, I'm finally starting to get the hang of this. And then around, I think, episode 500 or something like that, I remember having a similar thought. It might have even been 600. And now every new year, I'm just kind of thinking, wow, we have so many great guests lined up. The last few shows have been really interesting for us to record or release, whatever. It's just a really good place to be. That feeling of consistent improvement, not necessarily looking back and being embarrassed at something that you'd done a while ago, but thinking, wow, we're so much better now and that's okay. It's just a great feeling to have. And uh, I just wish I had that same feeling about 
my fitness level. <laughs> you know, <laughs> looking at, I'm like in college, I just, all I did was go to the gym and run. And, and it was just like, you know, I'd come back and eat whatever I wanted. And I'd be like, oh, I'm starting to have a, the bottom of my six pack is starting to show. And now I'm just like, so how long do I need to starve myself before I can see <laughs> any of my abs? <laughs> you know? How many stomach flus do I need till I get those abs back? And the answer is too many. But they're uh, not coming back, man. Just just say goodbye and move on. They're not coming I'm not even, back. I'm not even interested in that part. I'm just kind of thinking like, wow, this was so much easier when I was 24. Uh, story of everyone's life, right? So so that yeah. part, uh, luckily, my point is something is getting better with age, and it's what you're listening to right now to the exclusion of many other things. And that's okay. I've come to terms <laughs> with that. All right. Let's cut to it. Hey, gang. I'm looking for some moral guidance. While I try to mostly stay out of things that aren't my business, something has been brought to my attention, and I'm trying to figure out if I should get involved or not and could use some advice. I have a cousin who I didn't really know up until the last six years or so. I always knew from my other cousin, her brother, that her husband is rather abusive. The stories, though, were always that he would hit her and not their kids. While hitting her is in no way okay at all, I felt like it wasn't my place to say anything since I'm not really that close to her, and she was never the one who would tell me the stories about the incidents. Well, I just got wind that they've had a pretty rough past few months, and they were separated for a bit before she went back to him. He's pretty neurotic and also a really big guy. Anyway... I learned that he had not only been hitting her, but their 10-year-old son, who is on the autism spectrum as well. Mm. They have other kids who, to my knowledge, he hasn't hit yet. But he does yell nasty things to them. She keeps going back to him. But now, knowing that he's beating her and their kid, and she doesn't seem to be protecting them, I worry that some moral obligation falls to me. What if something really bad happens to their kids, or her? I know that I would feel awful if they became seriously injured or worse. What do I do? I don't have a super close relationship with her, but I hate not seeing anyone else stepping up and really taking a stand against this man. But in all reality, what can one do? What should I do, guys? Thank you so much. Young and dumbfounded. Ooh, wow. That escalated quickly. Yeah. Way to start the year off on a high note. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is really serious and tragic and sad. Actually, this this is really a huge situation this is a a serious situation i understand staying out of people's business i i get that this is well beyond that i think your cousin is clearly not thinking clearly look she's putting herself in harm's way that's terrible i understand i i get why people do that i think it's awful but i i understand why people do that and i understand your temptation to stay out of someone's business like that although i think for their personal safety that you probably shouldn't, but once the kids are involved, all red this all red lines have been crossed, and it's there's no longer, well, you know, this isn't really my business. Well, that no, this is community business. This is in the interest of the state, in fact. And what that means is that you, as a citizen, as a good person who is not party to this abuse, have a duty to report this. Yes, for your cousin, but absolutely for the children. This goes beyond social conventions. It goes beyond minding your own business. And in fact, in certain positions in a child's life, like a teacher or something like that, you would be under a legal obligation to report this. There's a reason those people are under a legal obligation to report this, and it's because they're the ones that see this probably the most often. So why would you absolve yourself of that similar duty knowing what you know now? So that sort of leads me to the first point. Make sure your info is credible. 
false accusations are really bad. They're negligent, of course. So at least try to verify what you've heard, but also make sure you find out who knows what firsthand, because I, I'm not saying this is your situation, but if this comes from the rumor mill of, well, such and such nosy neighbor who always exaggerates stuff said to my cousin's mom, who also exaggerates stuff, said to my aunt, who also exaggerates stuff, that this might be happening. And it's like, well, but if it's, nope, kids showing up with a black eye, other kids are complaining about it, they're saying things to people that you trust firsthand, nobody knows what to do, you're looking at something a little bit more credible here. Also, prepare your thoughts. You can even write it down, because I'm going to ask you to report this, and you'll likely be asked identifying information about the child, the nature of the abuse, your relationship with the child. Anonymous tips are always an option here, but identified reporting. In other words, if they know who you are and your relationship to the child, this increases the likelihood of prosecuting the perpetrator. So I know it's tempting to just go, well, I'm just going to drop off this info somewhere and just wash my hands of it. That is much weaker than you saying, I heard this and I heard it from credible sources and here's why. Because they can't follow up with you if you're anonymous and they don't have witnesses in any way. They can't trace things back to people who might be able to actually bear witness to this. So I would say this, call the Child Help National Abuse Hotline or something similar. We'll link to their website and their phone number in the show notes. It's 24-7, it's confidential, they're professionals. Uh, that number, in case you're listening and you need it now and you can't get to the show notes, is 800-422-4453. That's 800-422-4453. Again, we'll throw that in the show notes, so you can always go to the website and grab those. You'll be connected to a trained volunteer, and they can't make the report for you. Just FYI, this isn't you making the report. They can walk you through the process in a detailed way, let you know what to expect, counsel you a little bit as to what needs to get done and how to do it in a better way than I can right now. But the bottom line is you have to do this. You will never forgive yourself if something bad happens to your cousin, but you'll really, you'll never ever forgive yourself if something happens to your young nephew or niece. You just won't. It's never, it's not worth risking it and it's certainly not worth living with it for the rest of your life because this guy sounds like a horrible person and this stuff escalates as far as i understand it the abuse doesn't the abusers don't go you know i've been kind of a jerk about this i really need to tone it down it just gets worse and worse and worse in fact it sounds like from your email that it's gotten worse over the years it's eventually going to happen to the other kids um it could get worse with your cousin and this one in particular there's only it's only a matter of time so cut this off now and uh, do what needs to get done. And you may, you may face some social consequences from your family, but I think that those are much more survivable than what the alternative may be. And I think there's going to be people in your family that think you're brave for doing this. I think you're brave for doing this, if it makes any difference. I think that people who don't do this are, who don't report abuse like this, I, I understand, but I, I find it so weak. Because I think really at the end of the day, what's more important than protecting people in your family and your community? I just, I, I think you should do it and I think you should do it today. All right, heavy duty, Jason. Um, let's hope the next one is a little bit lighter for my own, for my own emotional well-being now here. <laughs> yeah. Next up. I think I, I think I can provide something for you on, okay. on that uh, scope. Thank you. Hi, Jordan. I just listened to the Pseudoscience episode 675, Rotten Psychology with Justin Ramsdell. I found the episode interesting. However, the Indian culture bases many things from pseudoscience, such as astrology. 
I also listen to the Ben Greenfield podcast, and I know you guys are good friends. Ben does believe in many things that seem like pseudoscience. If I'm not mistaken, Ben has talked about examples such as energy healing, emotional blockages, acupuncture, etc. Can you please clarify this for me? My opinion is that there are forces around us that science have not yet been able to identify or discover or prove. However, these forces can affect us. In Ben's podcast, he talked about Qigong with Robert Peng. If you can please clarify whether there are some things within pseudoscience that are not quote-unquote crazy. Thank you. Sincerely, Shubham. All right, Shubham. It might even be Shubham. I don't know. This is a non-fake name. <laughs> Shubham. <laughs> is that a common Indian name? That is very hard to pronounce. I've never heard it. Name. Yeah, me neither. So anyway, Shub, you're right. I'm friends with Ben, but I don't agree with everything he believes in, especially the pseudoscience stuff like that. I think it's probably placebo effect, which is also a real effect. We did a show with Joe Marchant called Cure about what placebo effect can do and what it cannot do. And I thought that was a really interesting show. That was a, a few years back. But man, I loved that episode. Placebo effect is just as real. It's just your body working in certain ways. But it is very limited in what it can do. Mostly revolves around absolving pain. It can't cure things generally. And one thing that you're missing in the earlier email here is that some things are as yet undiscovered, as you said, but they can be discovered and then they can be tested with science. Pseudoscience is something that fails actual scientific testing and is therefore not science. For example, something like dark matter is relatively unknown, it's hard to study, but it's science until it's proven otherwise. You know, it's proven that, oh, it doesn't exist, it's something totally different, or it's a, an illusion of some kind. Energy healing has been debunked by real science and is therefore fake, imaginary, pseudoscience. And I know I'm going to get a bunch of emails like, no, it's real. I have the crystals to prove it. Save, save your energy, literally. <laughs> literally, and your, both your literal energy and your metaphorical pretend energy. And don't email me that because I've looked at this a million times. This is not real. And so I hope this distinction makes sense that the – Pseudoscience is stuff that we went over with, for, for example, with uh, Justin Ramsdell. Science can debunk these things in many ways. Things that are undiscovered can still be scientific. It's just not going to be something like astrology where they say, oh, my gosh, look, these horoscopes, which are different because they're written by different people and they're totally different each time, depending on which newspaper you're looking at. That is not science. Uh, feng Shui which is the arrangement of certain furniture and plants inside living spaces, which is a Chinese art, not a science. It's been debunked a million times. If you want to run tests like this, it's actually not hard. If you want to run a feng shui test, I remember this from Penn and Teller's bullshit a long time ago, Jason. You remember this? They had called a bunch of really well-respected feng shui practitioners and some not-so-respected in their area. Yeah. <laughs> to whoever they could get on the show that week. Yeah, it was whoever was free at the time, probably. But they brought them in to arrange the furniture and the plants and the house, and they all had different ideas. In science, they all use the same method. They end up with the same results. In something that is pseudoscience or just plain nutbag, they all end up with a different result because it's a it's an art based on their feelings, etc. It basically fits Justin Ramsdell's idea of pseudoscience, and it is therefore not real. And you could scientifically test things like this. Um, it doesn't mean that it's as yet undiscovered or mystical. It means that it is not science. Does that make sense? Every time I rearrange my living room, I use Feng J. And mm. it's basically my, my interpretation of where I want to sit and watch TV. Nice. That's yeah. how I go with it. Yeah, that. the best view of the television near the heating vent, depending on the season. Yeah, I hear you. Exactly. 
Now, I'd like to point out that the name is right there on the tin. Pseudoscience. Pseudo is defined as not genuine or a sham. You know, other words that are synonyms of pseudo are like bogus, phony, fake, false, misleading, contrived. But the opposite of pseudo is genuine. So pseudoscience, right in the name, is fake science. So there you go. There you go. All right. Next up. Hey, guys. I found myself in a difficult spot. I'm trying to get back on the dating scene after a five-year relationship, and what I'm finding the most difficult thing to approach is the fact that I don't drink. I got sober during my previous relationship, and while my ex was supportive, towards the end of our relationship, she just really began to discover going out and partying as she's in her early 20s. That didn't bother me, but what did bother me was that she wouldn't include me, so it made me feel like I had some type of defect. I have no practice going out and getting comfortable not drinking at parties, dinners, and bars with a potential mate. I live on an island, which social life revolves mostly around drinking, so I feel like it would be brought up immediately when meeting someone new. I completely accept that I'm a much better person all around for not drinking, but I just don't know how to bring it up to new potential dating prospects. While I'm personally not ashamed or feel like I'm missing out, I feel like when I bring that up on any first date when the drinks are ordered, I'll feel immediately judged or that I may be scaring her off due to the negative stereotypes of alcoholics. All of my guy friends know my history, and we laugh about the crazy stories that happened when I used to drink. And while I've been to a few weddings and dinner parties with the guys since I've been sober and single, I'm still not confident in approaching the subject with a female I'm interested in. Thanks for your help, Jay. All right, Jay, this is not the end of the world. I get this. I have a lot of sober friends. Jason, you probably do too, actually. I think we all do. You, you probably have more than I do. You have unsober friends? Or are you just... I have many unsober okay, friends. Gotcha. Yeah. I have sober friends, just close friends, and it's part. It's a big part of their life. But man, I can tell you, it just does not affect our friendship in any way whatsoever, other than making them more interesting and having them be much more introspective and insightful on a lot of topics. I've definitely gone to AA meetings just to check it out with them and found it fascinating. And look, I think this is all part of your screening process now. Mature folks won't care that you don't drink. Health nut types won't care. It's a good filter to have. You're going to filter in people who don't value alcohol consumption as a primary social trigger. Uh, It's just something you're going to have to screen for. It's something you're going to have to bring into your life. You're going to be screening out people that find that drinking is central to their existence. And that's normal for young people. I'm not trying to judge people who do that. I get that you live on an island. Drinking is the default activity. It doesn't have to be. Islands have a lot of other things to do besides go and get wasted. They really do. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And you might have to hang out less at night and more doing alternate activities. You can order a club soda if you go out at night, you feel awkward, you don't have a drink. Just get a club soda, whatever. But finding activities that don't involve drinking, one, make better dates. You will suit your filter a lot better if you start going for people who go, you know, I really don't want to go to the bar, but I'll go for a night hike. Um, or let's go for a midnight swim or let's go on the weekend and go for a hike or a run or bike ride. Those are much better dates than let's go get wasted at some bar because we don't know how to interact without alcohol. And it's just going to suit your filter a lot better. You're going to find better, more interesting people who are not spending a lot of time doing that. And if people ask, you can say you don't drink because alcoholism runs in your family and you want to make sure you don't go down that road. You don't have to say, well, I have, I've had a huge problem with alcohol. I'm a recovering alcoholic. You can. 
In fact, it would be brave of you to do that, and a lot of people won't care. But you can also just say, and this is also not a lie, that alcoholism runs in your family and you want to make sure you don't go down that road. Or that you had crazy times when you were drinking and it wasn't a good feeling for you and you don't like the results, and that's the end of it. And if people get scared off by this, it's their loss. It might be a little awkward for you, but you know there are many, many bigger hurdles to face than being a recovering alcoholic and dating. There are so many. And I would say that this is such a minor thing. Most people won't even care. They, I, in fact, I think a lot of people admire that you don't drink. They might feel like you're initially judging them because they're drinking and you're not. But you can just play along really well and make it clear that you're not worried about that. And I feel like your core circle of friends will get over that so quickly. My friends that come out with us that are sober have just as good a time. We don't. Nobody judges them. It's just like, hey. He's having a club soda. Who cares? Yeah. As long as he's funny and having a good time, nobody nobody cares. They yeah, really lo- don't. A lot of people are drinking because they feel like they can't let loose socially without it. If you can, they might feel the, – the worst thing is they're, they might think, oh, he doesn't drink. He must think we're a bunch of losers. And if you say, no, I used to drink too much and I've had too much fun and I'm good now, but please feel free to indulge and uh, I'll be the DD, that's a pretty good setup for most people. Yeah, totally. You know, I – I don't think you should worry about this at all. And I, like I said, I would focus on alternative activities if you don't like being around it because those are more productive anyway. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort 
thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. All right, next up. Hey guys, my large extended family all have a lot to do with each other. Everyone seems to be off doing some awesome stuff with their life and everyone knows what everyone is doing. Whenever I go to family gatherings, I just simply don't know what they've been up to, their jobs, etc., as I've never had the courtesy to pay attention when I was younger. When meeting new people, it's easy enough to ask about their life, job, family, and hobbies. However, it seems I should know more about my cousins by now. How do I go about learning more about them and having meaningful conversations outside of, nice to see you again? I'm not interested in devoting my life to them, but it'd be nice to have more common ground when we do get together. I'd really appreciate some help. Regards, Woody. So, Woody, I had the same problem. <laughs> when I was younger, I was shy. I didn't talk to people that much. I'd play video games at family parties alone, not with everybody else. And then I traveled a bunch. I went to Germany, and I lived abroad, and I went abroad in college, and I didn't hang out with any of my cousins. I missed all of these weddings, all of these family events, all these cousins' weekends at cottages and stuff like that. So now I just call it out. Like, they know you guys weren't close growing up. They were there, too. They know. Yeah. They'll appreciate the newfound initiative you have to get to know one another. And maybe you can organize some sort of hangouts with them as well, but that, that might be a next step. In the meantime, if they've got kids, they got a new family, they're in that stage of life, ask about becoming a mother or father. So what I did, since I was doing a totally different type of life, starting a business, traveling, my cousins, they all had kids. And they really have, a, they're in a totally different place than I am. They're like teachers and professionals, that have families and multiple kids. I, I'm not even, I'm, Jenny's not even, we're not even talking about that stuff right now. So they're learning to parent from scratch. And you can talk about becoming a father, becoming a mother, learning to parent from scratch. Do they have a newfound respect for your aunts and uncles, their parents, now that they have kids? These are good conversational topics that lead to real conversations rather than just like, so, um, do you still play hockey? No, I quit when I was 14, dude. I'm 30 now. Oh, uh, cool. Um, do you still like new kids on the block? Nope. That I got rid of that in seventh grade. I mean, I understand the type of conversation that you're thinking like, Oh my God, I talked to Catherine when I was in seventh grade. I don't even remember her. This is what I do at family parties. Now, these types of real questions, just one or two here and there. I wish I've gotten to know my own family better when I was younger. I do, but it doesn't have to be awkward now. In fact, they might not even notice that you were a bit of a loner before, or they might. It doesn't matter. You know, better late than never. The best time to plant a tree was 100 years ago, and then second best time is right now. And I don't think that they're going to go, oh, what, Woody wants to get to know us now that he's older? Yeah, he does. So what? That's totally normal. 
Teenagers are self-absorbed. That's just how it is most of the time. Nobody's going to say, oh, well, I'm not going to talk to you now because we didn't talk when we were younger. If they do, oh, well. I mean, they're probably the family grump anyway. So I wouldn't worry about this that much. But I would start digging in, man. You know, your cousins are going to be really interesting folks. And if there's other people your age, my cousin Chris did this really well. He moved to California. He asked to visit me a bunch. I was always really busy. I started to feel really guilty because I was totally just not prioritizing him because I hadn't done that my whole life. And then he came to visit, and I was like, oh, okay, he's a really nice guy. We should hang out more. And now we're much closer, and I keep in touch with him a lot more. I text him. We talk. We go visit each other. It's really nice because he basically decided I'm going to get close to Jordan whether he likes it or not, and he did a good job of it. And now I wish that I'd done it sooner. So I understand where you're at, and I think you should start this process sooner rather than later, even if it is a little awkward at first. All right, next up. Hi, Jordan and Jason. I was stunned to be invited to be part of an international working group. This is eight people from across the world to represent a domain and develop a new international standard. But I'm in my 30s. The rest of the room is over 60, and I instantly felt an inferiority complex. However, as the first week progressed, I realized I had a lot more domain knowledge, and in a lot of instances, they were technically wrong. I found certain members supported me and were in vigorous agreement. However, the chair was part of the group that was ambivalent, and so they sided with the ambivalent side of the room. Regardless of my mannerisms, I screwed up. I did something in the first week that made half of the room disagree with anything I said. For example, I spent every night trying to explain why my ideas worked. I am the only one with national level experience, by the way. But anything I said after day three was rejected. But on one occasion, I whispered a good idea to somebody. They, in turn, raised it at the group level, and they loved it. So my question is, how do I make the group connect with me? I think this group can literally change the world. I screwed something up with the group, and I will only meet them one week every three to six months. So I need to change their perception of me in a very short time frame. What the hell do I do to change their mind? Regards, international screw-up. So I know that you edited this email because there's some redacted stuff in here, and I know this guy does something pretty intense on the international stage. That, uh, yeah, I wish we could mention that, but you're right. This is probably a very small group of people at a very high level, so let's just not do that. So here's what I recommend. The Ben Franklin effect. What this is is when you ask someone for advice, they become fond of you, because they want to do this and they think that if they help people that they must like them. This is from Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. What happened was Ben Franklin had some enemy in the Senate or whatever, and the guy was a book collector, which back in the day was a big deal. You couldn't get books easily, and if they were rare. It's like a Ferrari collector nowadays. Right. It's like, oh, who's got a 62 Enzo or whatever? Nobody. I mean, there's one guy. You want to drive it, you got to ask him. So Ben would ask this guy, I heard your, uh, he didn't say, I know you don't like me, I know we don't get along. He said, hi, I heard your uh, purvey, you own this rare edition of whatever, would you mind if I borrowed it? And the guy said, well, I don't want to look like an a-hole, so I'll send it to you. I mean, he didn't say that, but that's kind of what happened, right? He sent it to him, and Ben sent, held onto it, sent it back, and said, wow, this is really great, you're so nice for lending this to me, I really appreciate it. And the guy went, well, I helped Benjamin Franklin with this book, so I must trust him and I must like him. And that sort of ended their feud gradually over time. So every time you go to these meetings, ask one or two different key people, especially those that have influence over other people in that group, the ambivalent group, as you state, for advice. Ask them for advice. They'll want to help you. They'll feel fond of you because of this. Because remember, they're not 
your enemy. They might think, ah, this kid, this punk, but they're not thinking, I want to screw this guy over. You're not enemies. This is not the North Koreans negotiating with uh, the West. If you want to get more FaceTime with these people, which I highly recommend, I would say try to meet them outside of this working group, not during the meetings, but outside the working group if possible. Maybe you can keep in touch with them over the time that you're apart. Maybe you can go and meet them somewhere. I, by the nature of this business, I assume you're dealing with people that are very busy and live very far away and are very high level government officials. So I would say phone calls or email at least if you can't get actual FaceTime with these folks. Keep in touch with as many of these people as you can and use your age to your advantage. See, since you're half everyone's age, you can have them fall into the role of mentor. They're helping you, they're advising you in your career, they're telling you what they think, you're explaining certain things to them, and instead of saying, here's why my idea works, you can do this in the form of questions. Like, so I think that my idea works, can you see any flaw with this? Dot, 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 A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and they might go, oh, that seems to be something that's workable, right? Then you can say, well, I feel a little bit shy about presenting this to the group because I don't know if they'll be amenable to that. And they'll either say, yeah, I can understand that. I'll help you. I'll present it as my own idea. Or they might say, nonsense. I'll tell everybody to listen up because this is a good idea, right? Instead of you embarrassing them unintentionally by being right and then being wrong. So if they fall into the role of mentor and not peer, which they might resent since you're half their age, you little whippersnapper. I think that that would put them in a position of respect and they might actually help you get your mind share, your ideas across. So this one, two or one, two, three punch of asking for advice, keeping in contact and taking a somewhat subordinate role as a mentee of theirs will crack all but the hardest of old man egos. So take that from experience. And uh, best of luck with what you're doing here. I, I I really am interested in what you are doing. I wish I could talk about it on the show, but I definitely understand why you got to keep it under wraps. All right, next up. Hello, Jason and Jordan. I'm an ambitious student with a 3.85 GPA who is currently struggling in some IB, which are kind of like AP science classes. I've been set on being an engineer for a while now, but I'm probably getting a C in my IB biology class and potentially also in my IB chemistry class which has made me reevaluate if engineering would be a good fit for me. I love science and math, but I'm very worried that I won't be accepted into the engineering colleges that I'm set on if I get C's. I'm involved in a student organization at a national level and in which I have won multiple state titles, and I'm also a chapter officer at a club at my school as well as a musician. I have all of this going for me, but I'm worried that these colleges aren't going to care because none of them pertain to engineering. I want to be an engineer at a deep level, and I'd hate to switch my career focus, especially because I'm surrounded by high-achieving, extremely intelligent friends who might judge me for it. And this is made even harder because I used to attend a less-than-great school, at which I was one of the most intelligent students in my grade. Plus, my mother went to Princeton and was valedictorian at her high school, and now I'm having an identity crisis slash imposter syndrome episode. Should I reconsider the career path I want to set on? I'm going to try harder next semester, and I'm planning on increasing my involvement even more in the aforementioned student organization, but it might not be enough for the colleges I have my eye on that have smaller than 20% acceptance rates. Sincerely, man with a foiled plan. Yeah, this is just classic imposter syndrome. These are all 
normal feelings, 100% normal. If your parents didn't have academic pedigree, you'd be feeling different. If you didn't go to this other school where you felt like the smartest guy in the room, you'd be feeling different. This is pressure that you are putting on yourself. You even said so with, oh, my friends are gonna judge me, which they probably won't. Maybe they would, who knows? Sure, C's don't look great, but organizations and experiences more than make up for this, at least in certain measure. You can explain away lower grades with involvement, at least to a certain degree. So, yeah, I didn't do well in my AP, which is advanced placement. So these are like college level or advanced classes. I, you know, I, d- I didn't do as well in this class because there was a lot of extra work outside it and I was really focused on student leadership. That's not a great excuse, but it's better than, yeah, I just wasn't interested or, yeah, I couldn't keep up in class. But he's still rocking the 3.85 GPA, which is not anything to sneeze at. Come exactly. On. And a lot of people that apply to high-end colleges have great grades. They have solid 4.0s. So colleges start to go, eh, okay, another academic. What else have you done? And that more than makes up for it. I got into my schools and I, it was never about grades for me. I always had much just diverse, different experiences. And that was always what got me in. And I know this cause I checked, I checked with the admissions committees in law school and at the university of Michigan. And it was just so clear that it was not because of my grades. Cause they were at the bottom. They publicize which GPAs get in the most. They do like a, an average, like most people who got in had this type of GPA. So most of my grades were at the bottom of that, the very bottom. And yet I still got in because I had languages and I lived abroad and I started a business or whatever, you know, whatever it was at the time. Also, grades in most classes, not all, but most classes have nothing to do with jobs and career paths. They really, really don't. Hell, when I went to law school, which is a graduate program for a professional degree, I can tell you most of what I learned in law school had nothing at all to do at all with the practice of law. There were people that hated school that love being a lawyer, and there are people that love school and hated being a lawyer. And the grades are just not indicative of your ability to do the actual job. Those classes are a screen, they're a filter for other academic programs later on. They're a filter for employers to see how hard you work in lieu of other involvement, like the activities that you're doing. I'm not saying these programs don't count, or that these academic institutions have no idea what they're doing, et cetera. But just because you don't do great in biology, doesn't mean you can't build roads and bridges and buildings if you're going to be that kind of engineer. And just because someone else kicked butt in biology and organic chemistry or whatever doesn't mean they're going to be a great doctor, for example. So keep up with the extracurriculars. Realize your feelings are totally normal here. And definitely do not let a couple of C's dissuade you from your chosen career path. If you already know what you want to do, the grades are the last thing that you should worry about in terms of getting in the way. I got C's in French and now I speak five languages, although none of them are French. So there's that. But I would say, look, man, you already know what you want to do. Get work experience and do that part. And nobody's going to care about a couple of C's except for you. (laughs) All right. Last but not least. Hi, AOC team. I'm a 25 year old male living in Sydney, Australia. Over the past few years, I was enjoying the single life and was having many flings with different women, especially the past year or so. While this was great fun at the time, I'm now ready for a more serious, longer-term relationship. So recently, I started searching for a woman who would be good girlfriend material. Be careful what you wish for. About six weeks ago, I was spending a month in another city for work, and I met a beautiful American girl who was traveling through Australia. We really hit it off. I can't remember having such an instant connection with a woman before. She's smart, funny, gorgeous, and kind. 
We've been seeing each other about three times a week since we first met. It's always a great time for both of us. Then this week, she traveled three hours by train to stay at my apartment in Sydney for a week. I showed her the local sites, and we both had an amazing time. During this time, it became obvious that our connection is growing stronger, and there was something special between us. I could definitely see her being my girlfriend. However, we won't see each other for just under a month, as I had an overseas vacation booked. Even though we're not officially boyfriend and girlfriend, she was the first to say that she only wants to see me and no one else. Of course, I feel the same way. We've already made plans for her to stay with me in Sydney again for a week as soon as I get back from overseas. Plus, a road trip for a couple weeks shortly after that. All this sounds great. Although, here's my dilemma. Not too long after our road trip, her original travel plans were to visit nearby countries for about a month or so, then head back to America. That part of the trip was planned before we met. She's traveling with a girlfriend from her hometown, and they will do these countries together. She's the closest thing I've had to a girlfriend in many years, and I really want to keep it moving in this direction. However, with her leaving for these other countries in a few months' time, then back to America, I can only see it ending in heartbreak. Probably for both of us based on how she says she feels about me as well. Which brings me to my questions. Number one, should I stop worrying so much about what the future holds so far in advance and just enjoy the time we spend together and see where it leads? Number two, is it wrong and or selfish of me to wish that she stays in Australia longer instead of going to the countries nearby so we can spend more time together? And number three, since I'm looking for a relationship, is escalating things with this girl even the right direction? noting that you'll eventually have to go back to America in a few months, and I couldn't do a long-distance relationship. Thanks in advance. Fed up with flings. All right, so let me answer these questions in order. Should you stop worrying so much about what the future holds so far in advance and just enjoy the time we spend together and see where it leads? Well, that's a question that answered itself, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Should I do nothing, or should I do this really this thing I've clearly thought about for a long time? Yes, you should. Uh, second, I'll just leave that there. Second question, is it wrong and or selfish of me to wish that she stays in Australia longer instead of going to the countries nearby so we can spend more time together? Is it is it wrong? No. Is it selfish? Well, yeah, kind of, but it's not abnormal at all. Anyone in your position would feel the same way, so you can't really act on that unless you're going to be super benevolent and be like, no, you should travel. You know, you could try to say that, but she probably doesn't want to do that as much as she wants to spend time with you as well. Question number three, since you're looking for a relationship, is escalating things with this girl even the right direction, noting that she'll eventually have to go back to America in a few months and you couldn't do a long distance relationship? I would say you have to be honest with her, of course. Be very, very honest with her, especially about that whole not doing a long distance relationship part because it's too hard. You should, in my opinion, you should stay friends and stay in touch with her when she leaves. You can't go around avoiding connecting with people because of logistical concerns. Heartbreak is part of relationships. Missing someone is part of relationships. The experience of learning what you want and what you don't want is very valuable. You never know what the future might bring as well. For me, long-distance relationships were the majority of my relationships at some point. So what I mean is every relationship I had at some point, there was a long-distance component. I dated diplomats, international students. I dated locals when I was international as a student or as a professional. So I don't regret any of that. I think meeting someone like this who later down the line doesn't retain romantic potential is the recipe for an amazing friendship, and lots of great things come out of that, even if it doesn't end up being the romance you want it to be at the time. 
So that's my not super convenient answer. But I think, yeah, you can't go around just not doing stuff because you think, oh, this has a defined expiration date. Reminds me of that Black Mirror episode, which documentary of the week. There's no documentary. I've been watching Black Mirror, Jason. Have you been watching the new season of Black Mirror? My ass has been planted firmly on the couch watching Netflix this entire uh, Christmas break. So, yes, I did watch Black Mirror in one sitting. Wow. That's a hell of a binge. It's so good, though. And there was one so good episode, which sort of reminds me about the logistics and the whole defined expiration date. You'll know that episode when you... When you see it, the defined expiration date of a relationship, man, Black Mirror is so good because it's so creative. It's not predictable, obviously, by design. It creates different ways of thinking. And there's always a twist at the end where you kind of go, oh, my gosh, I had no idea or I didn't see that coming or, OK, maybe I sort of predicted that, but it was really well done. And I like things like that that challenge my thinking and sort of force me to expand. Don't fit inside the box quite easily, but are well done. Man, I just can't get enough Black Mirror. So good. So, yeah, Black Mirror is basically the Twilight Zone for our generation. Yes. And I, is this your first season or have you watched no, them all? No, I watched them all. The yeah, I watched all of okay. them. Okay. I thought this season was actually much better because there were more happy endings than any other season, I think, combined. Yeah, sometimes it can be pretty dark. And you're just like, yeah, oh. It can be. They, and they all died horrible deaths. The end. Yeah. yeah. Or, and they all got trapped in the space and die at a slow painful death <laughs> the end yeah it's always something like that so yeah this one at least has some happy endings i'm not all the way through the season yet though so so who knows what the tally shows <laughs> hope you all enjoyed that i want to thank everyone that wrote in this week don't forget you can email us friday at the art of to get your questions answered on the air i keep everyone anonymous you can either make up your own funny name or we can do it and if you, you're dealing with something sensitive you can always tell us what to redact or you can redact it. Just make sure you leave enough details. I mean, there was something in my inbox. That one that you redacted even more, Jason, was pretty interesting. And I understand why he didn't want that stuff public. You know, we're very sensitive to that. If it's feedback for the show, we're fans of strong opinions loosely held. And we'd love to argue like we're right, but listen like we're wrong. So don't be shy to hit us up over here. A link to the show notes to this episode can be found at theartofcharm.com slash FMF148. Quick shout out to Peter V from CastBox. It's a podcast app. It's one of the best podcast apps around. I always recommend using this app. You can search for keywords because they transcribe all the shows. And you can search for content inside podcasts. It's called CastBox. And uh, I met up with Peter, who's just an awesome guy. Has a storied career, instant bromance over here. Glad to have you as a show fan, Peter, and even more so as a friend. Are you in a strange land listening to our familiar voices? If so, hit me up. We will shout you out. I'd love to hear from you either way. I'm on Twitter at The Art of Charm. It's a great way to engage with the show. I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. And Jason, tell them where they can find you. I'm on Instagram at JPD. And as always, you can check out my other podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, now available on Spotify, as well as other podcast players, including CastBox. All right. And don't forget about The Art of Charm Challenge. Go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. We'll take you step by step to make better personal and professional connections, becoming a better networker, increasing your personal social capital and your charisma. It's for both guys and gals, so check that out. Go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. More from AOC at theartofcharm.com, including info on live residential boot camps that AJ and Johnny run every week down in L.A. And if you really want to dig into this stuff and work on your AOC skills with AJ and Johnny as your coaches, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Now stay charming, get out there, and connect, and leave everyone better than you found them.